Well, um, Merry Christmas to all of you. Um, it's special to be here uh, this evening with you. And, uh, you know, I just, whenever we read the Christmas story, I think to myself, what an incredible line. I think we have it up here on the screen. It says this. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. You know, um, good news is incredibly difficult to come by these days. I feel like anytime I turn on the news for even three minutes, I see like uh, people who use their power to manipulate others. You see genocide, rape. You see um, a dog who learned how to skateboard, and you're like, how do I cope with all of these various messages from around the world? Pretty encouraging few minutes on the news. And what can happen is that the emotions from the news that's presented in this story that we just read can become commingled with the emotions caused by all of the other news in our world today. And we can actually downgrade the good news from the story that we just read to okay news. I want to put forth to you this evening that God's entrance into history set a definition of his character for all time towards all people. And when we understand that character, it, the result will be great joy. And that was the good news that they were proclaiming. See, the primary thing that can steal your great joy is incorrect belief about the character of God. See, um, many have thought, and maybe this is a belief even in the room this evening, that um, if there even is a God that exists somewhere out there, then you owe them, or you owe her, or you owe him. That primarily what it means to be a human is to struggle in the mire of life and to pay homage to the gods if they exist. The Jewish law um, that was at the time of Jesus that uh, seems to be built on this sort of premise. Um, and in fact, even a popular creation narrative in the first century that was certainly part of the cultural milieu of the time uh, from the Babylonians went something like this. There were these two gods, Marduk and Chiamat. They got in a fight, and some other gods kind of got in the fight as well. There was a brawl. Marduk ended up tearing Chiamat's body in half. One half of the body became the sky. The other half of the body became the earth. And there was so much guts and blood and, and mess that Marduk had an idea. Let's create humans so that they can clean up the mess so that the earth would be a nice place for the gods to hang out. He says this, Marduk's words. He says, my blood will I take and bone will I fashion. I will create man who shall inhabit the earth that the service of the gods may be established and that their shrines may be built. Together humans shall be oppressed, and unto evil they shall live. Not great news, not good news, uh, if you believe that narrative, which many did in the first century. But you know, this isn't just a pagan sentiment. This, many people believe, even Christians believe, that you owe God, and that God's primary disposition towards the earth and towards humanity is that he's upset. Ultimately, the belief goes like this. God needs something from you, and so he demands your morality, he demands your allegiance, and he demands your purity. But I want to put forth to you this evening that a God who needs something from you is a God who doesn't come to you. That a God who comes close 
is a God whose very nature is generosity. What if we simply believed what Jesus said was the reason for why he came? In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, remember, Marduk, why did he create humans? The Babylonian creation myth. But instead to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the news of Christmas isn't, hey, look, God's paying attention. He just showed up. And so you better start behaving. But the good news that causes great joy is that he is bringing with him the character of a good God towards his people. We just read, it says in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, that the government will be on his shoulders, prophesying about the coming Messiah. The government will be on his shoulders. Isn't that an interesting phrase? And um, the reality is, is, is that when Jesus came, one of his primary messages was that there was an alternate kingdom to be enjoyed and lived in, one of peace, one of freedom, life without rules, but having your motivations changed all the way down to the core of who you are. And the key to living in this kingdom is your ability to let him be king. If you don't have peace this evening, it's because you don't have the prince of peace. If you want peace, you need the prince of peace. So I put forth to you this evening that Jesus' entrance into history is hope for humanity. Good news that will cause great joy for all people of all races, of all creeds, of all backgrounds. So tonight, three thoughts for you this evening. If Jesus came to bring hope, what is hope? How does Jesus give us hope? And how do we receive that hope? What is hope? Well, um, I did a little uh, search for you guys this evening. Webster's Dictionary defines hope as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. There's probably a little bit of hope in the room right now. You hope that you get that thing that you really wanted. Hope that's under the tree. It's a desire for a certain outcome or a certain thing to happen. Hope is commonly used to mean a wish. And so when you say, I hope for something, what you're saying is, I need that thing to happen in order for fulfillment to take place. And, and this is what it said in the dictionary. Its strength is the strength of the person's desire. The stronger your desire is for that thing, the stronger your hope is. The weaker your desire, the weaker the hope. But in the Bible, hope's defined in, incredibly differently than that. This is how the Bible defines hope. Hope is the confident expectation of what God has promised, and its strength is in his faithfulness. So where hope to the rest of the world is the more you desire something, the more you have hope, biblically speaking, the more faithful he is, the more secure your hope can be. It's pretty different. The greater his faithfulness, the greater you can have hope. Hope for Israel around the time of Jesus was what, that one day there would be a king who would rule in righteousness, peace, and justice. Somebody who could throw off the oppressors. The, the oppressors in the first century was, was Rome, but there had been many other, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, uh, the Gentiles. 
The leader over Palestine around the time of Jesus was a man named Herod, who at the time was nothing more than a half-Jewish pawn of the Roman Empire who spent most of his time building monuments to himself rather than advocating on behalf of the people. It is actually difficult to overstate the political and cultural angst in the Jewish people at the time of Jesus. And today, hope isn't too different, um, but just for most of us, our oppression isn't from outside of ourselves, but our oppression is in the drive that we have internally for meaning and purpose, all the while being told by the dominant cultural narrative that our lives are meaningless and purposeless. Charles Taylor, an incredible uh, philosopher, he wrote this book called A Secular Age. It's 500 pages basically describing the time that we're living in today. He says that there's this tension in every human soul, and he calls it being cross, we're cross-pressured, which is a description of these two different pressures in the life of every human. We have, on the one hand, this cultural narrative that we're just pieces of meat floating through a meaningless universe. And yet, that's one pressure, and yet the other pressure is that we still wish, it's a wish now, that love could last and be eternal, that peace would be possible, could peace on earth actually happen, we all long for it, and that sickness and pain would just someday go away, no more death, no more dying. And so he says, you know, there's these cross pressures, and as a, as a modern person, we've never felt these so strongly as we do now. What does hope look like for that kind of humanity? Well, it, it's strikingly similar to the promises in the scriptures for who Jesus said that he would be. And from Isaiah 9, it says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So you think about the cross-pressured individual in our culture today, and wouldn't it be great to have somebody, you're like, that's a wonderful counselor. You need some counsel for your soul? I got a wonderful counselor. You got to meet him. Wouldn't it be great? to have a mighty God, somebody who could actually come through for you. It wasn't a dog-eat-dog mentality. It's like, no, there's actually somebody above and outside of me who cares for me and can protect me and provide for me. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to have an everlasting father? It's like so many of us have just gotten to this point where our culture's like, just get over it. You eat, you drink, you die, that's it. And you're like, yeah, but I kind of wish deep down that that wasn't it. You have an everlasting father. Wouldn't that be good? A prince of peace. Do you have peace this evening? That's what he promises to give. And Jesus, his entrance into our world is him bringing all of these things into our reality. They are not just words on a page. They're possibilities. So how does Jesus give us this kind of hope? How does he do it? It's not just in the search for meaning or purpose, but also in the desire for the transcendent. We feel that. Without a belief in God, our world has become disenchanted. And this is reflected in levels of depression and anxiety that are present in the United States of America. Charles Taylor, he says this from that book, A Secular Age. He says, while the world is disenchanted for us moderns, 
we also experience a sense of loss in the wake of such disenchantment. This is called cross-pressured. On the one side, we feel the desire for significance and transcendence. On the other side, imminence and disenchantment. And that's just the internal reality for people. Think about the result of this. It, without meaning or purpose, you're not accountable for what you do. So how has that led, what has that led to in the United States? Well, it's led to the breakdown of the family. If I'm not accountable to my commitments, then why would I stay committed? Because it gets tough, and I'd rather not be committed. If you're not accountable to the things that you do, then every person has their truth. My truth, my truth is this. There's no such thing as my truth, there's just truth. A lack of truth has, le- has led us as a society to a lack of purpose and meaning. What's the point? What else has happened in our culture? Well, there's been a loss of identity. And so primarily, in our culture, people are functioning out of insecurity. That's the primary mode. How do you make your decisions? Oh, just I'm, I'm afraid of a lot of people, and I have them in my, mind and, in my mind, and so when I wake up in the morning and I think about what I'm gonna do, I check my actions and, and what I'm thinking and what I'm gonna say by those people, that little kind of cosmic counsel in my mind, uh, because I'm terribly insecure and I need the approval of others. Wow. How do you lead a home when you, when you believe that way? It's led to um, just a, the, the mantra of our day, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's like our mantra. And if you're lucky, your best attempt at life is the hedonic treadmill. How many of you guys have heard of the hedonic treadmill before? A couple of you? Yeah, the hedonic treadmill is this hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure, and a treadmill is, is where you exert a lot of energy without going anywhere. You put them together, and what is it? It's the, it's the life that many of us live today. Grasping at pleasures, trying to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment, all the while getting nowhere. And that's what many have come to call life. There are so many reasons Jesus brings hope to this particular predicament, but just a couple for you this evening. The first reason why Jesus brings hope is that he's re-enchanting our world. He's re-enchanting our world. What, what you're about to witness is a drawing, just an incredible piece of art uh, that I, I performed this morning in my notebook. I, I know you're stunned. But there's really two ways to go through life. There's the closed worldview, and there's the open worldview. Many of us lived in this kind of closed world mentality. It's like there's nothing outside of this universe. What you see is what you get, naturalism at its finest, and and that's just the way that it is. Guess what? All the enchantment is gone, and you will become disenchanted in this life. Now, the other worldview, surprise, is the open worldview. And what is that? The top of the lid is open. I don't know if there is a God. If there is, he might be able to get in this universe. So let me ask you this. If you find yourself here this evening, somehow you found yourself here this evening, somebody brought you here and you're like, yeah, I think I probably more uh, relate with the closed world thing, this whole myth, that Christmas myth that you guys are talking about, I'm not really sure about. Let me just ask you this. Could you doubt your doubt? What if this story is true? That's just as much of a faith leap as it is to believe the story as well. C.S. Lewis, he said this, the world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues And there's a rumor going around the shop that some of us someday are going to come to life. This story of Jesus coming, this Christmas narrative, is the rumor. And what if it were true? 
the story says that all purpose and all that value that you feel deep down, it must be true, and it is true. So what could happen if the box was open and God came in? What could happen? Re-enchantment. Secondly, the second reason why Jesus brings us hope is that he's anti-religion. Perhaps the most amazing part of the Christmas story is that if any of us were God, we probably wouldn't present ourselves so vulnerably. Every other time in the scriptures that God reveals himself, it's as a tornado or a cloud or a pillar of fire or something that just completely blinds you. But here, it says in, in later on in the New Testament, the most complete way that he represented God was when he came as a baby. I think he does this for the pure reason of accessibility. He's showing us I'm accessible. You can get to me. You can pick me up. You can hold me, and I won't demand anything of you. This is anti-religion, to come as a child, as a baby. See, most other religions in the world claim that you need a person to mediate between you and God, but Christianity claims that God wants to talk to you personally. He wants to talk with you. I, I, I do this thing every now and then. I have a friend of mine who's a uh, teacher at Grant High School down in Portland, and they have, he's a philosophy teacher. He has this philosophy class, and if you know anything about Grant, it's like, if anything, anti-God. And they invite a Christian pastor to come before the philosophy class, and they have this thing called Stump the Pastor. And so these students get together, and they've been thinking for weeks. What's the one question that's just gonna make this guy look like he has egg on his face? We can all laugh at him and, and just say, our parents were right. It's a bunch of myth. And so anyways, I go to this, I do this like once a year. I go to this class, and I get to stand up in front of all these kids, and they can level any accusation, any charge against religion and against Christianity at me, any question. And, you know, inevitably, this is one of the questions that you always get. How can you be so narrow-minded to say that Jesus is the only way to God? How dare you? Don't you know there's people all over this world who have all, were raised in all sorts of other religions, and if you were them, you would be believing the same thing, but you didn't. You were raised by a white Christian family here in the States. How can you say he's the only way? And I thought about it. How can I, how can I say it? That sounds a little bit narrow-minded. Am I being rude to say he's the only way? I mean, that's the claim he makes, but can I say that? And I, and I thought for a second, I said, Listen, every other religion presents a ladder to you. Pray this many times a day, eat this type of food, face this direction, go to church, do the right thing, don't have sex before you're married or whatever it is. And we create these ladders and it says, if you do these things, there's gonna be a desired result. You meditate enough, maybe nirvana, you do the right thing, then you'll get, maybe get your own planet or something like that, wouldn't that be nice? And there's this kind of like promise set at the top of the ladder if you are just willing to adhere to the tenets of this religion. And I said to them, that's what every religion does, but Christianity is the only religion that says, here's the ladder, and instead of asking you to come up it, God has come down it. Why is Jesus the only way? Because he's the only one who came for you. He's the only one who came for you. What other story can you find like this? If he doesn't need anything from you, because he came, he didn't ask you to come, he came. 
And Christmas time is about receiving him. How do we receive what he came to bring? How do we receive that hope? How do we receive it? Well, the question that I have for you this evening is how did Mary receive it in the story? Jake and I, uh, we have lunch every Sunday before the gathering, and uh, we were just talking today. We're amazed by the faith that Mary had. Mary was the first person to receive the blessing of Jesus into our world. And so how did she do that? Well, about a year ago, I got to sit with this Catholic priest, and I got to just, you know, as a, as a Protestant evangelical kid, I had all kinds of questions for him. I'm like, what about the Inquisition? What were you guys thinking? He's like, all right, simmer down. But I was like, you know, um, I got to ask him all these questions, and one of my questions was, why do you care so much about Mary? You walk into any cathedral, and it's like, Mary, 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 oh, she's everywhere. Mary, why do you, do you worship Mary? And he said this, so profound. He said, Mary matters to us because when the angel came to her and told her that she was going to become pregnant by God, think about that, that she was going to carry the Messiah, all all the while she's not married, it's incredibly taboo to have sex outside of marriage in her culture, and you can't imagine Joseph, he's like, okay, sure, it's not my buddies, okay, right? With all of that risk, here's what she said. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. He said this. Listen, we honor Mary because Mary gave such a large and complete yes to God that it created space for him to dwell. Her yes became the space for God to inhabit our world. That's why Mary matters. How do you receive hope? Well, hope is an agreement with something you haven't seen the fullness of quite yet. It's saying yes to a future yet to be. And Jesus set the precedent that a yes in his direction creates space for all of the goodness, all of the peace, all of the joy and hope that comes with his presence. How do you receive his hope? You receive him. You say, I am your servant, let it be done to me as you have said, Lord. There's an old Irish tradition that my wife and I just read about this um, Christmas where you leave a candle in each of your front windows and you leave the door unlocked on Christmas Eve. Have you guys heard of this? And the tradition is this. They do that to say symbolically that if Mary came to their town, she would have a place to stay. In this season, may we not get caught up in the hubbub of cultural Christmas, but may we do the same thing in our hearts. The light is on, the door is unlocked. Come in, Jesus. Listen, I don't know where you have uh, come from to be here with us this evening, but there are people who are surrounding you who are part of this family who have found real hope real relationship, real peace, real joy from knowing Jesus and giving him that yes that is large enough for him to inhabit. But all of that, all of the kingdom, the everlasting father, the wonderful counsel, all of that is dependent on what you do with him. What do you do with Jesus? 
I went to a little Christmas party for my wife's work uh, this last week, and I got chatting with this uh, gentleman who's not a Christian but grew up in the church and just really hates the church. And so he found out I was a pastor, and he's like, let me tell you why you guys are so horrible. I'm like, all right, this happens everywhere. No matter where you go, if I tell people I'm a pastor, hey, have you ever heard how bad the church is? I'm like, I have, actually. Um, so anyway, I'm chatting with him, and he's like, he's like, all you guys care about is just keeping people in line, controlling them, and telling them what to do. I'm like, you know what? That has been the felt experience for many people who have come to church. It has, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm sorry for that. But here's the, th- here's the thing, man. At the end of your life, the church won't be standing there judging you. It will be him. So what are you going to do with him? I don't care what you think about the church. When you read about him, what do you think about him? Do you just dismiss it as a myth? I mean, it's a fascinating myth that all of Western civilization would be built on his character, and 2,000 years later, we're sitting in a building still talking about him. One of my favorite things to read at Christmas time is this excerpt from uh, Dr. James Allen Francis. He lived back in the uh, 20s and 30s, and uh, he just wrote this beautiful uh, poem, sort of, about the person of Jesus. So if you want to, maybe close your eyes as I read this over you, and just go in your imagination and imagine him. This is how he describes Jesus. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon the cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen long centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I'm far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched All the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. What you do with him determines whether you have the promised hope. Let's stand together. I want to pray over you this evening. Jesus, what a gift it is to contemplate anew your coming into our world. Give us that same kind of faith that Mary had to receive you as the gift. Let's just take a moment, friends. We just invite you, Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, now with us, to come and just to speak to our hearts. Is there a space where we haven't given you that full yes? 
It's so beautiful. Just to give him the yes, guys, just means that you just get more of him. <laughs> you get more freedom. You get more joy. You get more peace. So we just invite you, Holy Spirit, now just to bring your fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. During this next song, um, one of the best ways I can imagine us to receive him is to receive his body and his blood for you. There's a reason why we eat the bread and we drink the juice. And it's because he didn't need anything from you. He was primarily here to give you himself. And it reminds us of that. And so during this next song, make your way out of your seats, just down to this front table right here. Uh, for those of you who are new, we actually don't drink out of, out of the juice. Uh, we just dip the cracker in the juice, all right? So we'll keep it sanitary that way. So make your way out of your seats. Come on down to the front dip your cracker in the juice, and go ahead and take it back to your seat. We're all going to take it together at the end of this song. So as we worship, let's worship him through the receiving of his body and his blood. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven sing in heaven and nature sing in heaven heaven nature sing joy to the world the Savior reigns let men their songs employ while fields and floods Rocks, hills, and plains Repeat the sounding joy Repeat the sounding joy Repeat, repeat the sounding joy And He rules the world with truth and grace And makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love and the wonders of his love and the wonders wonders of his love
this in Isaiah 53 prophesying about Jesus he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him he was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering familiar with pain like one from whom people hide their faces surely though he took up our pain and bore our suffering Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. When we come and we receive communion, we receive his body and his blood, we are declaring Isaiah 53 to be prophetically true, that an exchange has taken place, an exchange where our sin was done away with on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserved, and in exchange where he took the pain, the turmoil, the angst, the physical, if you're here tonight and you have something physically wrong with your body, it says here that by his wounds, you were healed. And so when we take the bread and we take the wine and we eat it, we proclaim this truth, that there is healing found in him. There is salvation and wholeness found in him. So together, church, let's eat. Thank you so much for what you've done for us, how you have welcomed us in. And just like we eat and we drink you in, your Holy Spirit deeply desires to be in us as well. So I pray for those of us who are longing for a touch from you tonight. If you're here tonight and you just haven't, you've been far from God or you ha- you've been close to him at a time before, maybe you just haven't really sensed his nearness, I just believe there's an opportunity right now for him to come near to you. So maybe just put your hands out in front of you like this. This is, this is the Christmas posture. I want to give up whatever I de- that doesn't belong to me. I want to receive whatever you have for me. It's a time to receive. And so, Jesus, pour yourself out on these people. Bless them super good this season, that they would receive all that you have for them. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. So good to...